TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Free Leonard Peltier, imprisoned for 45 years for a crime he did not commit. With Rachel Thunder and attorney Kevin Sharp. At the end of September 2022, after Leonard Peltier's 78th birthday, chances for his release are possibly better than ever before. His new attorney, Kevin Sharp, confirmed that no proof exists that ties Peltier to the 1975 deaths of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And the Democratic National Convention voted unanimously on September 10, 2022, to urge President Biden to release Leonard Peltier from prison. The Huffington Post called this a sign of the growing momentum to remedy what many consider a decades-long stain on the nation's criminal justice system in regard to Native Americans. And a two-and-a-half-month-long walk began in Minneapolis on September 1st with an arrival date in Washington, D.C. for November 14. Under the banner... Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice. The American Indian Movement March stops in major cities along the way for rallies and closes with a concert on November 14. Rachel Thunder is the lead organizer of the walk. She's the director of Ames True People of Indiana and Kentucky chapter. And you will hear from her in a moment as she has pulled the communications vehicle to the side of the road and monitors the safety of the walkers while we hear from her. But here first Kevin Sharp. He's former chief judge for the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Tennessee, now in private practice. He agreed to take the Peltier case pro bono and fights for his freedom. Kevin Sharp and Rachel Thunder were streamed live on September 9, 2022. They were interviewed by Levi Rickert at Native News Online. Here's Levi. Kevin, why don't you um, kind of tell us what, how you got involved with the Leonard Peltier case? Thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, it's an interesting case because I had been a federal judge. I, I was appointed to the bench by President Barack Obama. And those are lifetime appointments. And I fully expected to be a federal judge for a lifetime. But during that, the time that I spent on the bench, I became um, concerned about our criminal justice system, really concerned about mandatory minimums and the way in which Congress can force judges to a specific sentence, whether we think that's a just sentence or not. When I had to do two life sentences for a nonviolent drug offense, I had to decision, am I more valuable to society on the bench or off the bench? I decided to step down um, and started working on clemency for the young man that I sentenced to life in prison for his drug offense. That then led me to the White House. Kim Kardashian became involved in the case, Van Jones. We met with uh, President Trump and ultimately were able to get clemency for this young man. His name is Chris Young. That then became a story, not because there was a federal judge trying to get clemency for someone he sentenced, but 
because Kim Kardashian was at the White House. But because that became a story, those people who had supported Leonard over the years thought that I might be able to do something during the Trump years. And uh, they sent me the material. I, had, I was in 1975. I was 12 years old. I was not familiar with the shootout at Pine Ridge. I was even less familiar with Native American history. You know, you knew the 15 minutes that you got about the Trail of Tears and then moved on. And so as I as I got this material, they sent me uh, trial transcripts. I was sent court opinions, newspaper articles, photographs. And I looked at that not as someone who was, you know, they wanted to hire as a, their lawyer, but I looked at this material as a member of the justice system, as a federal judge. And I'm, I'm just giving it an objective look. And while I'm reading through this as an insider to that system that really abused him, it became clear to me what happened and how they did it. And it was more than just uh, FBI misconduct. The U.S. attorney engaged in misconduct. And I think the court, we talk about this internally, but a judge can put his or her finger on the scale. And we talk about this. It's why you you get make sure you get the right judges, because a judge can determine the outcome of a case. And as I'm reading through this, I see what's happening here. And the thumb is on the scale against Leonard. Evidence is hidden that would show that he did not shoot these agents. Witnesses were intimidated and threatened. Uh, perjury was suborned by those who should have been upholding the Constitution. So the what happened was really clear to me. And it saddened me and it made me angry that our system that I had spent my adult life working in and protecting the Constitution, three times in my life I've taken an oath to, to support and defend the Constitution, once when I joined the military, again when I became a lawyer, and again when I took the federal bench. And what I saw were people who were tossing that aside for the sake of getting a conviction. So the what to me was clear. It was the why that then led me down what so far has been a three and a half year odyssey as I learned why this happened. And that has become to me more distressing and more anxiety causing and more uh, makes me angrier than the what. And so I, I, I came into Leonard's case, agreed to take it pro bono and fight to this grave injustice. You know, that's how I got here. And that's that's the shortened version. And every day I wake up thinking about Leonard and what can I do today to correct this. Leonard, for me, it's more than just about a person. It's about a constitution. And it's about the, the injustice that has been done uh, to a people by a government that that promised to do better. It occurred to me as I was sentencing people from the bench that you're not just sentencing the person who's standing there in front of you, right? A sentence like this affects an entire family, uh, affects an entire community. And that's why it's all the more important for clemency to be granted. This is, again, not just about one man. This is about families and this is about community. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin, for joining us. Um, well, thanks. Thanks for having us on. This is all part of, you know, that that widening of the support. It's so deep, but we need to make it wide. They're, they're constituents uh, to the president and the president cares about constituencies. 
Um, and this is an important one of the Native American communities, the in indigenous peoples, and you know those of us who are learning this story and want to see a better country than what we've got and better than the one that did this to Leonard Peltier. So thank you for, for having us on and continuing to, to talk about this. That was former judge and now Leonard Peltier's attorney, Kevin Sharp. He was interviewed by Levi Rickard at Native News Online. Next, Levi is calling on Rachel Thunder inside the AIM communications van along the route of Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice. Rachel Thunder is responsible for the safety of the walkers. While talking to Levi Rickard, she's monitoring the two-way radio, and you can hear the warning flashes of the van in the background. And the connection is a bit scratchy. Here's Rachel Thunder. Rachel, tell me this. Who came up with the idea for the walk? The walk is coming through the American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council. There were those of us us that were having dreams honored Paltier. You know, I can only speak for the dreams that I was having and tell him to, you know, don't, don't worry. Uh, your people are coming to get you. Uh, AIM is coming to get you. And so these dreams, they kept coming, you know, people. And um, we ended up going into ceremony through that prayer and those ceremonies. You know, we started planning this walk from the heart of the American Indian Movement to Washington, D.C. to carry that elder Paltier's release from the heart of the movement to those people that are there in terms of influence to see his release. It's 1,103 miles. We're in Wisconsin right now, to Illinois, uh, Indiana, Ohio. Pennsylvania and into DC and take about two and a half months total. We're just through our first good. It's been really positive. Um, it's a blessing and an honor that have made this commitment for two and a half months because that's not an easy commitment to make Western society that we live in. You know, people have to, you know, work in this, in this system that's been created. All these walkers that are here that have come in from all around Turtle Island. Um, and, you know, in those for ceremony too, clean off our walkers and to pray for, for Leonard, you know, on top of the actual walk itself, you know, we're having these rallies and along the way. So our, our next one is actually going to be in Madison, Wisconsin. So you kind of want to keep up with us, you know, they can just follow Altair's walk to justice. Um, we do post daily updates on where we are, things we need the things that we're thankful for and that's kind of like our mission um, we also have an instagram page and it's the same name same title and if you don't have social media that's okay too because you can email us at justice.com um, and we invite everybody to come and join us you know, you know come walk for a day, whatever your schedule is just come walk for an hour um, you know help us carry this prayer you know it's just been really beautiful to see all these people People coming to Gap and to get these miles covered, and um, you know, of course, that's donated supplies and and monetary donations. Those are appreciated too. And we ask is that you know we're running a complete a zero 
tolerance policy, no drugs, no influence, because this is a prayer and it's a ceremony and we can't have that, that kind of influence. That was Rachel Thunder, a key American Indian movement organizer of Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice. Earlier this year, in January 2022, I produced a radio program in support of clemency for Leonard Peltier. I drew material from an extraordinary interview by Chris Hedges with Peltier's new attorney, Kevin Sharp. Here are parts of their conversation about the history of the FBI involvement on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Here's Chris Hedges. Before we go into the legal anomalies, of which there are many, right. let's talk about what life was like on Pine Ridge in the 1970s. You had a tribal government uh, led by Wilson, the, the goon squad. It was a reign of terror, I think within two years. Uh, 60 uh, residents of Pine Ridge were allegedly murdered by these enforcers. They were given weapons uh, and support by the FBI. But talk about that kind of climate of terror because it's important to the case. Right, you really can't understand Pine Ridge without understanding the history and what brought everyone to that place on you know, June 26, 1975. You have to understand the 1970s and the violence and turmoil that was taking place. And then you really need to understand the history of the American government's relationship, if you can call it that, it's at least it's, it's dealings with the Native American community. And so you had hundreds of years that had kind of led you to this place. You need to understand the first wounded knee and then understand what happened at Wounded Knee in 1973 and then understand the violence that was taking place in and around Pine Ridge because of the goon squad that you talked about. So in some ways, it's very much like, like Vietnam, that you've got the United States government having picked a side in uh, local disputes between the what was known, they called themselves the goon squad, the guardians of the Oglala Nation, and the traditional Native Americans that live there there was tension between those two groups. The United States government, for obvious reasons, picked the side that continued to lease land back to them, right? That did not resist what the United States government wanted to do there. And you dropped in young agents, uh, federal agents armed who were uh, had no understanding of the history of the people of that area. And it became very violent they were providing, uh, as you mentioned, weapons, ammunition, intelligence to the goon squad who did whatever they wanted to do to the, to the population. And so the place was a powder keg. The federal agents went from about half a dozen at one point up to over 100 federal agents, which then added to the tension of the area. And so it was, you know, of course there was going to be uh, violence in the area. You cannot, you cannot uh, support that group and, and create what was known as the reign of terror and not expect something like this to happen. And what was the blowback? Peltier did not grow up on Pine Ridge. He was one of those Indian a AIM activists who came from the outside. R right. So AIM was invited 
are asked to come to Pine Ridge because the federal government was not protecting, providing any protection or assistance to the traditional uh, Native Americans that were there. And so they asked AIM members to come in and help them. That's what had happened. There was also a trial going on in Custer uh, related to some riots earlier. But that's why Leonard and Dino Butler and Bob Rabideau were there. They were there to help the, the traditionals who lived there. And they were there camping on Jumping Bull Ranch. And that morning, for whatever reason, two agents came onto the reservation. They claimed to have been wanting to serve a warrant on a man named Jimmy Eagle, who was wanted for stealing a pair of cowboy boots. Well, I, I question whether or not that's even a federal crime that the government should be getting involved in. It was a pair of cowboy boots. There better have been some really nice cowboy boots. They didn't seem to be too concerned about the murders that were taking place, but they were worked up about Jimmy Eagle and radioed in that they were following a red pickup truck that fit the description of, of Jimmy Eagle's uh, pickup. That's when, having followed this truck onto the reservation, that's when the shootout started. The, the agents were in unmarked cars and in plain clothes. You were unable to distinguish them from goon squad members, right? And so anytime there are cars or people pulling onto the reservation that are known not to be part of that group that lives there, there's going to be tension and a shootout started. No one knows who fired the first shots. No one knows who shot the agents. And, and also, it's worth mentioning, there was another individual, a young Indian, a 21-year-old boy named Stunts, who was also killed. No one investigated his killing. And that's kind of where we are. There was, a, there was a shootout. The United States government ultimately admitted they do not know who shot the agents. Um, but someone had to be charged and convicted. Two agents were, were dead, and so was Mr. Stunts. You know, that then leads to this, to this domino effect that ultimately results in let's convict Leonard Peltier at any cost. Uh, so let's go into the trial. I think you uh, laid out what the environment was like. The egregious uh, violations were numerous. Perhaps you can tell us what they were. Well, and part of that, you have to understand the first two trials, because Leonard fled to Canada, believing, rightfully so, that he couldn't get a fair trial in this country. He fled to Canada. Canada would not extradite him because there was not enough evidence. Really, there was no evidence that he had killed anyone. So the case had been transferred to a judge in North Dakota, and he went ahead and tried Leonard's two co-defendants. Mr. Robideau and Mr. Butler. He also let in, this judge let in, the evidence of the reign of terror that we talked about earlier, the FBI misconduct, the threats and intimidation, part of uh, the way they were able to get the, um, the indictments against them was to get three young boys who were there that day to lie about what they saw. And so by lying to the grand jury, they were able to get the indictments. Those three individuals recanted that testimony during the first trial. And that, along with the evidence of the reign of terror and the FBI's involvement in that, the jury acquitted them based on self-defense. So now you've got a, a very angry 
U.S. Attorney's Office and FBI that the people they claimed had killed these in their agents had had been acquitted based on self-defense. And so there's another FBI memo that says it's now time based on what happened. We have to turn the entire resources of the United States government into convicting Leonard Peltier, right? Not into finding out what happened, not finding out who shot who, uh, into convicting Leonard Peltier. But the first thing they've got to do is get Leonard back from Canada. Canadians won't extradite him. There's no evidence. So they need some evidence. And what they do is they get a woman named Myrtle Porbear to sign an affidavit saying she is Leonard's girlfriend. She was there that day. She saw Leonard shoot them. That was enough as it would have been had that been a truthful affidavit for the Canadian government to extradite him. Of course they would. Turns out, though, Myrtle Porbear never met Leonard Peltier. And she wasn't there that day. She had no way of knowing who Leonard was. The FBI drafted this along with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Having been a federal judge, I know how these affidavits work. That ultimately, uh, the FBI drafted this affidavit, handed it to Myrtle Porbear, and told her to sign it. Otherwise, they were going to take her child away from her. She had a young daughter. Well, we know that's not an idle threat because we now know about, as, as most of the native, all of the native community is known for uh, centuries, that the United States government would snatch children and send them to, to these boarding schools. So that was a real threat. And, you know, Myrtle Porbear signed this affidavit. Ultimately, the Canadian government, when it was discovered that this affidavit was a lie, wanted to know what happened. The then U.S. attorney, not James Reynolds, but the, his, his predecessor, said he was as shocked as anyone at this false affidavit. There was not one scintilla of truth in it and that her FBI controllers, as he called them, had drafted this. Well, that's not how that works. They knew this affidavit was a lie. And that's where it kind of starts. And that gets... Leonard extradited. Now they've also got a problem because the boys who said they saw Leonard and his co-defendants going down the hill to uh, shoot these agents have also all recanted. So that evidence is gone. There is no evidence that Leonard was there. The evidence at the first trial and as, uh, as recorded by the office back when the two agents were chasing who they believed to be Jimmy Eagle in the red pickup truck, now they've got to change that. So that evidence gets changed and they say, well, they thought it was a red pickup truck, but they're city boys from Denver. They don't know what a red pickup truck is. It was actually an orange and white scout, you know, right? So they, they start reverse engineering their evidence. Well, what does Leonard own? Oh, he owns his orange and white SUV. Okay, well, then they weren't chasing a, a red pickup truck. They were chasing the SUV. The whole trial comes down to one piece of evidence. The U.S. attorney has one piece of evidence, a ballistics test, and their expert gets on the stand and says, we would have liked to have done a firing pin test, which would be the most accurate ballistics test we could do and prove it. But all we've got is a shell casing and the shell casing tells us the shell casing test tells us that this shell casing that we found at the scene came from Leonard Peltier's weapon or a weapon like the one he had. And that was really their entire evidence. That was their case. They've got this. He did it. Turns out they learned years later through a Freedom of Information Act request that the uh, FBI had done a firing pin test. And it showed that it was not Leonard Peltier's weapon. They hid it. They buried it. They never turned it over. It's a, it's a blatant 
constitutional violation. But at that time, the standard on appeal was different than it is now. Today, the standard is did withholding the exculpatory evidence deprive the defendant of a fair trial? And of course it did. At that time, though, the standard of review was did withholding the evidence or had the evidence not been withheld, would the jury probably have come to a different conclusion? And that's where the Court of Appeals says we can't say that they probably would have. They possibly would have, but we can't say probably. But now the U.S. attorney doesn't have the one piece of evidence, right? Now they, it shows that it wasn't Leonard who shot the agents. So they changed their theory to one of aiding and abetting. He was there and he was shooting. Well, then the question becomes, well, who did he aid and abet? Because his co-defendants were acquitted based on self-defense, which means there was no crime. So who did he aid and abet? The, the assistant U.S. attorney on the case says, I don't know, maybe himself, which is a legal impossibility. So essentially what you have is a guy who was there. That's what he had two life sentences for. He was there. Had the jury known that he was not the one who pulled the trigger? Uh, it would have been a completely different case. Certainly he would have gotten a fair trial. Um, and, that's, and that's what the Constitution requires. Just give the man a fair trial. Instead, you've got someone who spent over four decades in prison for, for a case that, you know, Mr. Reynolds acknowledges they don't know what happened, and there's no evidence that he did it. That was Peltier's new attorney, the former judge Kevin Sharp, in conversation with Chris Hedges. And closing this with a clip from an interview of Kevin Sharp by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now!, posted on YouTube on January 31st, 2022. The big misconception about this is that Leonard Peltier was convicted of shooting two agents. He was not. They had to drop that because the evidence that they had presented that he had shot two agents was false. It was perjury. It was manufactured. That's why Judge Heaney, who was on the Eighth Circuit, who heard his appeal, and although upheld the conviction later came out himself in favor of commuting this sentence, said that federal government has to take responsibility for what happened here. And absolutely they do. Context matters. But the lack of evidence that this man killed someone also matters. And so it's time. We're now 46 years later. You've got a 77-year-old man with multiple uh, health issues and his tribe, the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, saying, we will embrace him. Please send him home to us. And that's what I'm asking the president to do. You heard the voices of attorney and former judge Kevin Sharp, American Indian Movement member Rachel Thunder, and thanks to the broadcasters, Levi Rickert at Native News Online, Chris Hedges in On Contact and Amy Goodman at Democracy Now! You can follow and maybe join, even for a day, The Walk on Facebook under Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or 
the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Our email address is tuc at tucradio.org. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.